Support for The Gray Area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. How did Putin sell the war in Ukraine to his own people? Or did he sell it at all? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. To the outside world, Putin's decision to launch an unprovoked war doesn't make a ton of strategic sense. It will be costly, protracted, and ruinous to the Russian economy. And potentially tens of thousands of people will die. Putin has his own warped rationales. He believes that Ukraine is an illegitimate country and that its mere existence is an affront to Russia. And he's constantly spinning a twisted historical narrative to justify his aggression toward Ukraine. But how does all of this look through the eyes of the average Russian citizen? After all, they will suffer as much as anyone. So why would they support a completely unnecessary war? Well, if you are an average Russian citizen, it may not look so unnecessary. You might believe that Ukraine is trying to exterminate the Russian population in its east, or that the government of Ukraine is run by Nazis and drug addicts, or even that Ukraine is working clandestinely with America to develop nuclear weapons. Or maybe you don't believe any of that, but aren't quite sure what's true. Or maybe you've seen through the lies and you're already protesting on the streets. To be clear, Ukraine does not want this war and has done nothing to incite it. But in Russia, reality is unusually malleable. Putin controls state TV and his regime has pioneered the art of modern propaganda. So when he pushes absurd narratives about Ukrainian aggression or whatever, it's crucial to remember that he's speaking to an audience that is constantly bombarded with disinformation. This is a long-running strategy in Russia. Use the internet and state TV to flood society with propaganda. Demonize the institutions charged with debunking that propaganda, and then exploit the confusion and cynicism that results. A 2019 book by Peter Pomerantsev called This Is Not Propaganda 
remains one of the best looks at how the information ecosystem in Russia works. Pomerantsev was born in Kyiv, and he later worked as a reality TV producer in Russia and then a journalist. Now he's a disinformation scholar at Johns Hopkins University. In today's episode, which we recorded last Friday as things were rapidly deteriorating in Ukraine, I was able to talk to Pomerantsev for a short time about what was happening on the ground there, about the ambiguous role propaganda has played in justifying this war, and whether Putin's ability to manufacture reality might finally come to an end. Peter Pomerantsev, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? It's going. I'm not even sure how to start this, Peter. Um, I know these are hard times. Uh, you were born in Kyiv. You have people there. So look, there's a geopolitical explanation for how we got to this point, And that's a story about history and international relations. What I want to talk to you about is propaganda, because it's impossible to understand what the hell is happening now in Ukraine and in Russia without knowing this backstory. And this is what your 2019 book, This Is Not Propaganda, was all about. This new way of managing reality and how it was really pioneered in Russia. How would you describe the approach to propaganda uh, in Russia and what is new or different about it? Well, look, it's it's one that's that's constantly evolving and Putin now is evolving himself or, or sort of degrading from somebody who used to work in the space of strategic ambiguity, where propaganda was very important because it's, you know, when, when he's not being clear about what he's doing, then propaganda is very useful to confuse and dismay. But now he's in a sort of very different phase. He's just gone full on mad dictator mode. And, you know, his, his aim is propaganda of the deed now. And his aim is to kill as many people as possible by the looks of things. Even though still, we don't quite know what his aims are, do we? We're still guessing. <laughs> so yes, I suppose there's still some ambiguity to what he's doing. And a little bit of confusion. But clearly propaganda of the deed is becoming more relevant than propaganda of the word. I mean, it is interesting that how right to the end, many people, including many people in Ukraine, didn't believe he would invade. Uh, even though the American intel was so explicit about his plans, people were saying he's not going to do it. But is that to do with propaganda or is that to do with just people not being able to get their heads around the possibility of an invasion like this? Well, it's a good question, right? And, but, but before we get to the deed, he did have to sell this hysteria. He did have to sell a bunch of narratives about what the hell was going on in Ukraine in order to justify this you know, act of aggression, right? I mean, how, do, how was he able to sell that convincingly to enough people to make it feel like this was something that wasn't um, totally unprovoked, that it was something that was justified and necessary? So I don't know if he has managed to sell that to anyone this time. The innovations have come from the Americans and British this time to get his invasion plans out early. Yeah. So when they happen, it's really obvious this was his intent the whole time. I suppose some a little bit inside the country, inside Russia, there is the whole one about this is all NATO's fault, which has definitely worked. This is all the West's fault. But even then, I don't think many people want war. They haven't made a huge effort in justifying the war. They did some nonsense stories about Ukrainian crimes, which I really don't think people are buying. And if they're buying, they still don't probably think they're justification for war. So I don't, I don't think people are with him at all. You know, Russia is a place completely pacified with no 
no civil society to speak of, but people are still coming out to oppose the war. So I, I think it's just not even trying anymore, really. It's just brute dictatorship now. Uh, it's a police state at home. I mean, I suppose he's still keeping us guessing on what, what he wants in Ukraine, but it's clear it's some sort of subjugation, whether it's troops everywhere or whether it's it's some other form of suzerainty. You know, it's clear what he's um, it's clear what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, uh, the last polling I saw, you know, he still has something like 69% approval rating. And maybe the word sell is just wrong or misleading because, you know, part of the case you make in your book is that the kind of propaganda that Russia does now isn't designed to persuade people. It is designed to confuse and disorient them. So they're not entirely sure what to believe. And if you can convince people that the truth isn't knowable, you've lulled them into a kind of paralyzing cynicism. And and I guess, according to Putin's thinking, you deliver them over to the strong man who pretends to have all the answers because people just aren't sure of anything else. And so they just sort of give themselves over in that way. At least that that has been the idea. Maybe it's not working anymore. I hope it's not working anymore. But that has been at least the plan or the design up until this point, no? Yeah, that's precisely what it is. But look, there's deeper stuff than that. It's definitely, we live in a confusing world full of nasty conspiracies and you need big, strong Putin to defend you. Yeah. So it's not about liking him. It's just feeling that the need for an autocrat in a world that's confusing and where you have no agency, where democracy is a charade, I mean, that's his big thing. I mean, like Ukraine is not a democracy. It's just ruled by oligarchs and the West. He goes on about on and on and on that it's not a real democracy and not a real country. That's something that's very, very clear. And, you know, that's they're taken everywhere. America is ruled by a deep state. Britain is dominated by the BBC, which is ruled by 10 Downing Streets and the Queen. I mean, it's the sense that nowhere do people have agency and therefore you need an autocrat. So that's, that, that is a strategic message they've been doing for decades, really the sort of cynicism that, that makes you dependent. But I, there's something else going on now, which is always there, but it's much more pronounced now. And, and that's an older thing. It's, it's, it's fascinating to see it uh, so naked. We usually associate it with fascist movements. And it's a propaganda that revels in sadism and humiliation that is very sadomasochistic. It was very obvious in Putin's announcement of the war, which he did where he kind of humiliated everybody in his cabinet. They looked terrified as they all asked for war. And he was like, what do you think we need? I want your opinion, not mine. And each one of them had to say like, oh, we want war, we want war. And one of them sort of fluffed his lines and he started humiliating him publicly. And they all looked terrified. And this is a system built on humiliation, which both sort of yearns for these leaders who are there to protect and hurt you at the same time, which is very much a Russian leadership concepts, very embedded in the language people use around leadership. Um, and then has it's full of this aggression that is then sort of filtered out towards others. Um, deeply misogynistic. I mean, Putin talks about Ukraine as either the mother of all Russian cities or a whore, a prostitute that's betrayed Russia. He makes casual rape jokes all the time about how he's going to rape Ukraine. Even as he talks about things like spheres of influence, which sounds like a geopolitical idea, if you look closely, it's not very coherent. I mean, Russia's sphere of influence can, it sort of swells and waxes and wanes. It can be all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific or everywhere where there's a Russian speaker or the former empire. I mean, it's always changing. It's not like a security guarantee or something, which is something rational. And, and, and it sounds a lot like what the Germans may, meant by Lebensraum in, in the Nazi times, which is really a psychological sort of sense that stuff belongs to you, that you've been so humiliated and aggrieved that now you need things and they belong to you. You don't have a sense of your own borders. Others aren't really real. It's, it's a very kind of like psychoanalysts talk about this stuff a lot and sort of little kids who don't understand where the borders of them 
themselves are. And, and this was very much associated, this whole sort of package of emotions, which are constantly, you know, strengthened by the propaganda, uh, are something we associate very much with sort of, you know, like the, the Nazis did a lot of this. Uh, I'm not saying that he's like a Nazi. I'm saying they share these underlying psychological characteristics. And the propaganda has really become about that. And at the center of it is the grievance narrative. Like, we are owed things because people did things to us. And there's a great line from... Eric Fromm, the German psychoanalyst who looked at the Nazi propaganda, who said that, you know, when the powerful have grievance narratives, that's actually a way of them saying what they want to do to others. So, so I think that's where we are at the moment. We're in this kind of the psychological pulsating nastiness of authoritarianism. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Peter Pomerantsev after a short break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks, hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Your book detailed some of these personalities behind the scenes in, in Russia, you know, the, the spin doctors and the propagandists and the, the social media guru types. And I remember you describing them to me as amoral political artist. <laughs> and that was always kind of terrifying to me. I mean, there really is a belief that truth is an irrelevant category now. And I have to say, you know, like lying and getting away with it is 
certainly a, a kind of display of power, but lying in a way that says, of course I'm lying, but you know what? It, it doesn't matter and you can't do anything about it anyway. It's the purest expression of power because it signals that I don't even have to pretend to be accountable. I'm beyond accountability. Reality is accountable to me. And I don't know what the hell to do about that, but it's deeply, deeply cynical. That, that's a huge one. And I think that's an old thing as well, to be honest. I mean, so, so there's some famous Chinese proverb, but it's like the story of a Chinese emperor who basically, to show his power, all his courtiers have to say that a horse is red when actually it's black. I mean, that is like his ability to force the absurd onto them is a sign of his power. And more recently, Assad, the elder, in a brilliant book, whose name, I forgot the author, an anthropo- Lisa Wedin, an anthropologist who wrote about Assad the Elder wrote about these ridiculous posters that were everywhere in Damascus, like, Assad is the greatest dentist in the world, and Assad has the most beautiful butt cheeks in the world. I mean, like, ridiculous stuff like that. And the point was not to believe them, the point was to say that you agree with that to show that you are that you are in his power. So Putin is definitely doing that. He's like, I am going to say there are Nazis in Ukraine, and I'm going to prove it, and that by having power over reality, I have true power. So there's that. I mean, what was always very interesting that it wasn't just about power. It was also about pleasure. People enjoyed it. People enjoyed sticking two fingers up to glum reality because there's this, an energy that comes with that. I think that was part of Trump's appeal as well. But again, like Putin is in a slightly different phase now. Definitely all that stuff is there. But the clever propagandists are on the edge of power now. You don't need clever propaganda in a police state. You know, the phase of Russia that I was writing at was a much more kind of violent, but still trying to play by the rules of, of the global order phase. That's not where it is now. It's now, it's now in, domestically, it's a police state. Internationally, it's an open empire. It's not hiding anymore. And it's revealing this sort of raw psychological mechanisms of fascism. I think we can call it fascism. I'm not a political scientist. They row constantly about what fascism is. But whatever that stuff that the fascists did, it's like the raw pulsating psychological heart of it. Do you think Putin would have been comfortable making this decision to do what he's doing if he didn't have this kind of reality bending information system behind him? Or are we just beyond that? Like you're saying, is it just now it's just brute raw power and we're beyond even trying to to spin, even though he's still spinning. But do you think that even matters anymore? It might matter in the long term. At the moment, not. At the moment, it's about violence. There's a couple of narrative games which they might play which worry me, but but maybe they're, they're not as bad as I thought. I keep on thinking at one point he's going to try to push this back onto us. He's going to say, you know, give us those guarantees we wanted to earlier or else we kill more Ukrainians. You know, they had these weird lists of things like officially close the NATO open door policy and get ballistic missiles out of Bulgaria. There are none in Bulgaria, which is a very weird one. It was almost as if they were giving them, if in case they lost this, they could also always say, ha-ha, you got rid of ballistic missiles from Bulgaria, and like, there were none. But the other one about closing the, the open door policy, I mean, you could see them finding the Ukrainians at the point where the Ukrainians are ready to capitulate. And then the Russians go, okay, we're going to kill some more unless you do this. I don't know, maybe I'm going too far. And then it kind of pushes back into our court. By the way, I think in the long run, it is going to be very important because here we're in the middle of the violence. After that, we enter a new Cold War pose. You know, quite obviously, things are never going to be quite the same again. It's not like 14, where Putin basically got away with it. I don't think it'll be like a hard Cold War pose, but we're going to enter a new pose. And then I think the battle of narratives will begin seriously. Because at the moment, we're too close to the action to really see how the narratives are going to fall. 
Well, obviously, Eastern Ukraine, the two regions there, is sort of at the center of the pretext for this invasion. And I don't know if it was in your book or the last time we spoke, but you you said that Eastern Ukraine was ground zero for the information war. And you had some kind of insane stories about that. What did you mean by that? Why is that particular part of Ukraine ground zero for whatever the hell it is we're talking about, this information war? Because like everybody was doing it there. You had, you know, you had Russian media, you had local media, you had Western media, you had Ukrainian, you had this complete chaos and everyone was just focusing all their information operations into this small space of land where people are quite connected and very much online and stuff like that and always had access to media. So the stuff in people's heads was complete, you know, chaos of, of mist, dis and other types of information. So, so that, it was very interesting observing that. And you just could, even though there was actually less, there was a lot of fighting, there's real deaths, but they were less important than the narratives. I mean, the fighting, was, the fighting was there to create narratives. So I don't know. Do the people who live there believe the bullshit that Putin is spinning? I mean, do, do they believe that Ukrainian government is, is exercising or, or committing a genocide against them? Do, do they believe that the Ukrainian government is run by Nazis? I mean, do they believe this stuff? At some moments, there were moments of panic where they were like, the Banderites are coming, they're going to kill us. But, you know, to keep people in that kind of sense of belief is you can't do that for long. I mean, there's lots of sort of like experiments that show just generally keeping people believing in something really intense is really hard for a long time. Uh, Again, even going back to the great Hitler rallies, you know, those effects wouldn't last for very long. Famously, people just go home and go like, oh, what did I just do? So so it's very hard to keep people hysterical, but they were at one point, yeah. Especially when it's combined with like, you know, a real war, but not for very long. And largely people just didn't know what to believe. And, and it's strange. When you don't know what to believe, you end up believing conspiracies because you can't explain what's going on. There's so much so much chaos. So you look for conspiracies to explain the world. And conspiratorial thinking was very high. You know, the Americans are coming here because they want our um, uranium was a big one out here or our gas or something. It's like, psh. I mean, like maybe people made the argument about America going to Iraq for oil, but nobody was going into Donetsk for their, for their shale gas. And the main source of information for a lot of these people is Russian state TV, right? And if you watch Russian state TV, you've got, I mean, you were living in a fantasy land, but it's a completely insulated, self-contained, internally coherent fantasy land. And so it becomes plausible or plausible enough. Um, so no, not quite. I mean, it's interesting. Russians are very cynical. They don't believe anything the state gives them, but the state has learned to play on that cynicism. So again, you kind of like, you expect people don't believe you, but they'll believe conspiracy theories. So they might not believe everything about, you know, Ukrainians and Nazis, but they will believe that it's all America and NATO doing this for some reason. So talking to friends in Moscow the last few days, you know, I was like, what do you think? They're like, oh, the war is terrible. The war is terrible. But, you know, the war is being pushed by the Russians and the Americans for their own conspiratorial big power reasons. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, you know, there's a conspiracy between the Kremlin and the White House. Uh, and again, we always have to look at the psychological mechanisms, you know, so they, they, people not, might not believe the facts. People are generally quite cynical and skeptical, but they might buy into the deeper emotions. And again, the grievance narrative, I think, is emotionally very compelling. So, you know, people might not believe everything that Putin says, but the overall sense that the world owes us, that we've been mistreated, that works well everywhere because it falls on very, very fertile psychological ground. People like to feel aggrieved. And is that kind of flood the zone style propaganda where you sort of confuse and disorient people and maybe make them more kind of vulnerable to some of these darker conspiracy theories. Is that something that you have witnessed just sort of be exported around the world? I mean, is that, is that Russia's like greatest export in the 21st century up to this point? 
Well, you know, I think it's not just that. It's a lot of other things as well. But you see that China's followed suit. The Chinese obviously had to look at what the Russians do and kind of like, has gone, oh, that's interesting. They're nothing as good as it, but as the Russians. I mean, the Chinese obviously have much more money than the Russians and, and they're much better at many things, but they're still quite far behind on, well, military operations, firstly, and propaganda. So then you see the Saudis and the Qataris all doing it. So the, the Russians kind of burst through, did a lot of this stuff first. But it's, you know, you see it inside countries as well. I mean, you see the right wing doing it here in various ways. And that's just, that's not because of the Russians. They've just come to the same set of conclusions. But I think Russia was the first to create, like, a foreign media operation based on this. So in that sense, they're pioneers. And look, the Russians have always been into propaganda. They've always thought it important. And I suppose they went through a bad phase at the end of the Cold War where they got really bad at it, but they were just bad at everything at that point. But... Traditionally, they were very good at it. I mean, they were amazing at it in the communist revolution. They were sort of like, you know, the great reinventors of propaganda. They were actually very good at it for a long time in the Cold War. Eventually they lost, obviously, but but there's a period that they were very good. People, every hip young person was into communist propaganda, you know. Was, and they invest in it and they see it as a, a tool of foreign policy. Propaganda isn't a dirty word in Russia. It's just like something that you do. It's like the state's use of, of media. They embrace it as a full-spectrum state policy and uh, in a way democracies uh, do much worse, I think, and much less of. More of my conversation with Peter Pomerantsev is coming up after one last quick break. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. As you know, this kind of politics, this way of doing politics, made its way to 
the U.S. It was pretty pronounced in 2016 with, with, with Trump and Steve Bannon, who was Trump's chief strategist for a while, was sort of very explicit about uh, his indebtedness to, to Putin and Russian, uh, Russian-style propaganda. And you made a very interesting point to me the last time we spoke. And you were talking about Ronald Reagan, right? You know, it's like someone like, like Reagan was an actor playing the president the way we thought the president was supposed to be played. He was imitating a president. And then like Trump comes in and he just takes it to a completely different, weird Russian style postmodern level where he wasn't even playing the president. He was like, he's an actor playing himself and it worked. And Trump is clownish in a way that Putin isn't. But there are a lot of parallels in how they play with reality and imagery and the sort of emotions they prey upon, really. I don't know if that's something you think much about. Yeah, but then now Ukraine's done the opposite. You actually had an actor know, who right? played the president TV show yeah. who was now the leader of the free world. I mean, it's funny, Zelensky, who listens, I mean, literally, is a very popular comedian who played yeah. the president, like a comedy president who accidentally gets into power to clean up corruption in the country on a TV show, then leveraged that to really run as a president. And people were very suspicious of it. Was Were the oligarchs backing him? What, does he know what the hell he's doing? You know, all that stuff. And is he a bit weak? He was never the biggest patriot. He kind of disappeared during the war. I mean, like when the war started, he wasn't on the front, you know, particularly. He did shows at the front and stuff like that, but he wasn't like the biggest patriot in the country. He's from the eastern part of the country. He's a Russian speaker. He did a lot of shows in Russia. He... Um, he always made a lot of his money in Moscow. So, like, people were very suspicious about his patriotism. And well, we can ask, we'll litigate a lot about the run-up to the invasion. The Ukrainians haven't been warned by the Americans, should have been preparing more earlier. But that's that's a hard one, you know, because there's pluses and minuses to preparing because that can provoke the Russians as well. And it's a hard situation. But overall, he's been I mean, he's just the leader of the free world. I mean, he's just incredibly courageous. And I don't know what will happen next. He might get killed. They might capitulate. I think all those things are on the cards. But it's, he's, he's the opposite. He's someone who played the president as an actor who's become the most real president ever. <laughs> it's like, so I guess people can transition. It's the upside down world. Is there, I mean, Ukraine and, and, and Zelensky are sort of like on the front lines of defending, you know, the global democratic order here. And do, do they have any means of waging some kind of counter propaganda campaign? I know President Zelensky has has given speeches where he's trying to speak directly to the people of Russia, saying, we do not want this. This is not good for anyone, making pleas, as it were. Uh, is there any chance that that can get through and reach enough people to raise the stakes for Putin domestically and hopefully end this thing sooner than later? Can he break through the bubble is really what I'm asking. Can he puncture the information bubble that a lot of Russian citizens live in? So overall, people do not want the war. Celebrities are going up. I mean, Andre Rubel, right. the tennis player, just was in a competition, just said no to war. And he might just have a message. Andre Rublev. I think we can get behind that. In these moments, you realize that my match is not important. What's happening is much more terrible. And like I said, you realize how important it is to have peace in the world and to respect each other no matter what and uh, to be united. I mean, they never say, fuck you, Putin. They always say no to war. It's all a bit abstract. But that's, I guess that's still very brave for Russia. Uh, a lot of celebrities just went on Instagram straight away and said, no, I don't approve of this. Like, really big celebrities, like, all completely state-sanctioned celebrities, like, you know, Ivan Urgant, and he's uh, the Russia's David Letterman, basically. Very, very, very mainstream, 7 p.m. talk show hosts have all said, no to war, no to war. This is awful. I mean, social media 
is full of people saying no to war. So, so I don't know if that's Zelensky breaking through. I do agree that it's really helpful because people know him. People know him from Russian TV. They're like, this guy's meant to be a Nazi. And he's been on Russian TV a lot. I mean, just the idea of like a Russian-speaking Jew from East Ukraine is a Nazi is just like, what are you talking about? It's just so stupid. I Look, I know Putin remains fairly popular in Russia, but there are signs of some cracks here. As, as you said, people... They're not buying this the way they've bought everything else necessarily in the past. I mean, it's not even clear the oligarchs who prop up Putin are all the way in on this one. And this war in Ukraine is a very different animal. It will bring real pain to everyday Russians in a way that nothing has for a very long time. I mean, is it possible that, that Putin overplayed his hand here? Is it possible that the material realities on the ground might finally catch up to him and undo him? I very much hope so. But for that to happen, we have to do real sanctions. So far, the sanctions are weak brew. The sanctions have to be much, much, much stronger. So if we get there, if the sanctions really start being clever and undermining him and making him less popular, but even more putting real cracks in the elites, real cracks and furthering the palace coup, then then maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe. But we have to do them. So far, Italy and Germany are being very slow. And at the end of the day, it's all about oil. And while Europe is dependent on Russian energy, there's only so much that can be done. So this is going to be a slow one. So is that the level of sanctions you think it's going to take, if that will work? I mean, absolutely maximal, cut off the, the oil? Yeah, an oil embargo would be great. But but I mean, that's not going to happen because then Europe has no oil. Right. Look, we have to wean ourselves of Russian oil and gas. But that'll take a while. I mean, that's not going to happen overnight. But that's that's why I think it's very important that the real narrative battles are going to come afterwards. Right now, everybody's outraged. They're doing some sort of sanction. Well, the interesting thing is, will they keep them up afterwards? And this is the long one. And what do you mean by the real narrative will come out later? What, what is the real narrative? We have to make very clear that Putin is a, a challenge to the world, not just to Russia or not just to his neighbors. We have to make very clear that, that he's a fundamental challenge to everything that democracy in Europe stands for, or is meant to stand for. And that you have to take some sacrifices to defeat that. You know, it's about time. It's, we have, it is going to hurt. It, is, it might cause, if we don't plan for it economically, it might cause an inflationary spike in Germany if they cancel SWIFT. We have to start planning for it. He's been doing political and economic warfare towards us for 20 years and we've tried to ignore the fact that what he was. Did you see this uh, story in Germany yesterday? So the German energy minister came out and said, we've just realized that Gazprom has been holding back on gas for the last like six months to make sure that we have very, very little in our reserves, to make sure that we can't stop buying gas right now from them. So, you know, Russia is thinking about this, thinks about energy, thinks about all these things from a warfare point of view. They're at war with the West. They're going to use every tool. We haven't been thinking about it that way. We have to start realizing that's what they do. These are not business deals. They're not interested in integration. They're interested purely in political and economic warfare against the West. And that means also thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we wean ourselves off? But how do we you know, create stabilization funds so that we can battle them? Because Russia's created a big fund for itself to make sure it can withstand sanctions. So basically, we have to start understanding it's an adversary and you have to think strategically. And that will require a paradigm shift and a long-term paradigm shift. Well, look, I, I know you have to go. So I just, I do want to say before you, you do, one concern I always have in these sorts of moments is the way the media, Western media in particular, because that's where I live, it's where you live now too, 
the way media pivots into disaster porn mode and you know becomes invested in maximizing the spectacle or the tragedy because it's just a better TV show. But I did see you raise another concern, which is that Western media's doom and gloom rhetoric in this case about Ukraine, you know, the, the stuff about, you know, kind of counting down to the fall of Kiev, that this is actually helping Putin. And I just want to give you a second to explain why that is before we wrap up, because it's important, it seems to me. Sure. Thank you, Sean. Yes, that's very important. So look, A, I've got to say, let's just talk about CNN. So CNN's coverage on the ground is exceptional. Clarissa Ward is at Kharkov, is the Martha Gellhorn of our time. So they're doing great journalism on the ground. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking in the studio. There's a sort of real sort of like accentuation of how many hours before Kiev dies? Um, and every interview, they kind of, they keep on asking like, uh, when will Kiev fall? When will Kiev fall? And actually the Ukrainians are doing much better than everyone thought they would. They're shooting down Russians. Even if Kiev slowly falls, the Russians are then into partisan warfare where the Ukrainians could decimate them. So trying to make this feel as if, you know, this is the end, the end, the end. Eh, I don't know. You know, this could be a very long war and the Ukrainians are doing much better and Putin may well have miscalculated. So I'd be a little bit cautious. I'd really ask them to get rid of that. It's a framing issue, you know. You can still report what's going on, but it's the framing issue. It's the, it's the kind of narrative that you're telling underneath. And, you know, just maybe a bit more circumspect and a little bit more balanced. Well, I'll leave it right there. Peter, these are uh, these are tough times for you and a lot of people, and this is a just a bloody awful story, but your perspective is always invaluable. So thank you so much for hopping on this call on such short notice. I appreciate it. All right. Okay. Thank you very much, mate. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. <laughs>